Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Saturday, July the 29th, 2023. It is currently 9.26 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And I know it's hard to believe. Maybe it's not hard to believe for you, but it's absolutely hard for me to believe that it's almost August. We're fast approaching the month of August, which will mean we will have basically one month to try to finish the rest of the book of Jeremiah. Oh, and the book of Lamentations. I think you can see if you've been paying attention, if you've been following along, we're not going to get anywhere close. I don't know how I'm going to work all of this out. I don't know how I'm going to proceed, but we're going to figure all of that out. If you've been with us, great. If you haven't been with us, well, you've missed out on the summer of Jeremiah. The summer of 2023 has been dedicated to the book of Jeremiah. We we were going to kind of maybe not, it's still not truly verse by verse, but we are covering and reading every word of every chapter so far. We're not really going in depth with every verse, but our summer study of the book of Jeremiah we, we, the goal was to finish the entire book by the end of the summer. You know, I, I still would like, maybe we'll get to some sections that I think we can skip, but so far every chapter, I'm like, we can't skip this. And I'll look at the next chapter. I'm like, we can't skip this. And then I'll look at the next chapter. We can't skip this. And if I keep that going, then we're not going to skip anything. So we'll, we'll just have to see as we get closer and closer to the end of August. We'll have to find out what's going to happen. We're going to find out together because I don't really know either. It's going to be, it's going to be a big surprise. It's going to, who knows? Maybe there'll be a, a major plot twist. Who knows how it's all going to play out? You just keep listening to this podcast and then you will find out. And hopefully you are participating, not just listening, right? I hope so. Now, tomorrow, the goal at Victory Baptist Church is to finish Jeremiah chapter 13. That in the first hour, so between the 10 a.m., 11 a.m. hour, the goal is to finish Jeremiah 13. In the 11 to about 12, 15 p.m. hour, the goal is to finish Jeremiah chapter 14, which I think there's no way that's going to happen. So most likely tomorrow morning for the worship hour and for Sunday night, we'll be finishing up Jeremiah 14. Then Wednesday, Jeremiah 15. That That's the goal. It would be great if we could finish 13 for Sunday school, 14 for the morning worship, and then Sunday night finish chapter 15. Then Wednesday, go to chapter 16. That still puts us way, way, way behind, but it would, you know, move us along a little bit. But we'll just see as I get into the chapters, you know, that's where I really kind of just kind of, you know, I kind of feel or see, well, you know, we need to cover more of this. And sometimes it's just based off how people are answering questions if people seem to get it, emails I'm receiving, questions I'm being asked. But look, I know, I know, I know we're fast. Look, come on. We got to be realistic. Come on, come on. All right, come on, come on. We, we can be honest here. It's just us. We're fast approaching the end of July. Come on. How, how, how is your study going in the book of Jeremiah? Have you already lost focus? Have you already started worrying about other things? You kind of haven't stayed as committed to it. 
I, I, I look, if that has happened, all I ask of you is just to pick it back up and let's press on and let's see if we can bring our study to the, of the book of Jeremiah to some, some kind of satisfying conclusion, right? Something that will be benefit, a beneficial conclusion. And let's not forget one of the things I wanted to do with the book of Jeremiah this summer. Yes, I want you to learn the book. Yes, I want you to grow in your understanding of it, but I also want it to be very beneficial to you spiritually. So we're now fast approaching the end of July. Has it helped you at all spiritually? Has it convicted you? Has it challenged you? Has it shown you your own sin, your own failure? Has it convicted you with the law? Has there been any hope of the gospel presented in all of our study, or at least it drives you towards the gospel. I mean, any spiritual benefit you have gained up to this point, I would love, I mean this, I would love for you to take a, t- a minute, two, three minutes, five minutes, and just write out a little paragraph of the spiritual benefit you've gained from Jeremiah. I, and I'm not saying anything I have taught, just from the book itself. Forget me. It's not about me. It's not about like, look, look what I accomplished. No, the book of Jeremiah accomplished it because that's the word of God. Uh, But if there's been any spiritual benefit, I just feel like we started out, people were like, yeah, and then life happens and then life gets in the way. And then Jeremiah becomes less of a priority. It's not as exciting. And then you realize we're never going to finish this. And then slowly but surely... It just kind of falls to the wayside. And I would hate for that to happen. All right. So the Bible study exercise for this summer is Jeremiah 13. I, some of you, I think have already asked. I think I've gotten an email or two. So what are we doing when, when Jeremiah is over? Well, first we got to finish Jeremiah. What we may do is be added. We may add an additional Bible study exercise. If we, if it just becomes obvious, we're going to be in Jeremiah for a long time. We may add something to it. Now for the podcast, you know, we've got the long gospel redo series going on. We've got that. Uh, obviously we got for the Bible study exercise. We have the book of Jeremiah going on. Uh, so there's some other things we wanted to do. I wanted to start a series on a book entitled 30 Old Testament Passages with Deeper Meaning, The Surprising Significance of Seemingly Ordinary Verses. I've got the book right here. I wanted to start a series on that. Also, I was given a book right here, hardback, beautiful book, Basic Theology by Charles C. Ryrie. I was thinking, wow, we could do a basic theology study using the 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 book by by Ryrie that could be fun that could be interesting um i wonder if we could uh could do that so i would like to do that um i also um i have a book here entitled if i can find it i have a book here entitled spiritual warfare and the storyline of scripture now i've been doing some i've done some devotionals from this book if you've been if you keep up with everything we do um, I would like to do that. Um, the, I think for, uh, oh, there's just so much. I think the, the curriculum that I'm using for Jeremiah, I think for the fall, they're supposed to be in the gospel of Mark. That could be fun. I, there's just, look, 
There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough hours in life to study and cover everything that I would like to cover. But I, I hope we can come up and I'd love to get your thoughts and your, your input and, 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 you know, what, what you're struggling with and, and so that we can produce content that will be helpful. But the Bible study exercise, that series will always be going on no matter what else we are doing. Because the goal of that series is to ensure that whatever else we're talking about, what other things that are distracting us, we have one thing to say, hey, 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 let's study God's word. Let's not get caught up into cult, uh, to culture wars, news commentary. Let's stay focused in the word of God. That's why we've dedicated the summer to the book of Jeremiah. And that's why every every time we're doing a Bible study exercise, that's what we're trying to do. And, and remember, it's to try to get you to actually participate this entire podcast series falls apart if you're just listening or you're, you're, you, I need you with a notebook and reference tools and working and taking notes and asking questions and, and participating and turning in homework. And if, if, if that's not happening, then, then this all fails. It, it all fails. And I know it's a crazy concept to really trying to find those people who are like, you know, I want to do more than just listen. I actually want to study. I actually want to dig in. I actually want to do homework. Actually, And I hope that that's you. And if it's not you, find someone that it is and send them our way, all right, to the uh, to the Bible study exercise uh, podcast series, right? But are you ready? So what am I doing tonight? Well, I am sitting here, I'm just going to be honest, having a little bit of a panic attack, because it is July the 29th and I'm thinking, man, here we go. I, I came up with this great idea and it's going to implode and it's going to fail. But hey, you know, you don't try. <laughs> well, I guess if you don't try, you can't fail. But if you don't try, you can't succeed. I guess there's a lot of different ways of looking at that. But I'm hoping I can finish it. But I thought, you know, it's Saturday night. Tomorrow morning, I've got to be preaching on Jeremiah 13. I got to finish that up. And I've got to uh, work on Jeremiah 14. I know what I'll do. I'll just grab a random sermon from the Sermons 2.0 app, download it, and I'll just just listen to a sermon on Jeremiah 13 just to offer, well, just to kind of get my mind kind of focused, focused back in because we, we all, all can lose focus. And it's been, you know, it's been a busy week, a lot of things going on. So I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe this will help me. So I'm just going to invite you. Hey, you want to sit, you know, it's basically, well, you can definitely see the light from the road right now because the blinds that were behind me, they, they, they collapsed today. They're gone. So I'm missing blinds on my window. So it's just no curtain, no blinds, no anything. So anyone driving past the street, they definitely can see the light and the window. It's like you're driving by, you're like, it's Saturday night. What is he doing up in the studio? And you, well, you know, you know, technically you would pull out your phone and just listen and go, oh, he's live, but come on, we're not going to do that. It's the idea that you he's in the studio. You pull up in the driveway, you knock on the door. What are you doing? Well, I'm, I think I'm going to listen to a sermon on Jeremiah 13. Well, cool. Can I join you? Grab your Bible, grab your reference tools. Let's go. Let's sit down here in the studio and let's see what they have to say in regards to Jeremiah chapter 13. Now, if you've listened to the study that we have done here for the Bible study exercise, you know that we kind of did a, we kind of outlined Jeremiah 13, I think different than every other sermon, every other commentary I could find. They, they kind of simplified their outlines. And we broke it down in a little bit more detail. Now, remember, Jeremiah chapter 13 
It's kind of, it's very interesting because kind of the writing style changes. Jeremiah all of a sudden dedicates a chapter to basically offer one object lesson after another, after another, after another. He takes these objects, these things, of course, He's doing what God is telling him to do. God, obviously, is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God is directing him. We understand that. But God is directing him to these specific objects. And so we've got to look at what those objects are really trying to get. What's the message contained in the objects? All right. So this is how we broke down the chapter. Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11, is the object lesson of the garment. There is a linen garment, right? Some translations refer to it as a girdle. Some believe it's a, a garment worn by the priest, right? Or or the high priest, some may go far so far to say. And so we looked at what does that garment possibly mean? What, what is trying to be said? That's Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11. Jeremiah 13, 12 through 14, and I keep going back and forth between Jeremiah 13, 12 through 14. Do I want to refer to this as the bottles? But we called it the bottles because one, those are objects and they are mentioned. All right. So 13, 1 through 11 is the garment. 12 through 14 is the bottles. Number three, we refer to this as the stumbling travelers versus uh, chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. Right, the stumbling travelers. Then thirteen seven chapter thirteen verses seventeen through twenty, the flock, the flock, then verse twenty one, the woman in labor, then verse twenty two, chapter thirteen, verse twenty two, the skirts, then chapter thirteen, verses twenty four through twenty five, the chaff, and then twenty six through twenty seven of chapter thirteen. Nudity. That's how we broke the chapter down. Now, you, if you have a different way of breaking it down, of course, you can always share it. But I really wanted to focus on what, what, what's the object in each one of these sections and then just try to figure out what, what is God trying to teach us in utilizing these objects. So again, 13, 1 through 11 is the garment. 13, 12 through 14 are the bottles. Chapter 13, verses 15 through 16 is stumbling travelers. Chapter 13, verses 17 through 20 is the flock. Chapter 13, verse 21 is a woman in labor. Chapter 13, verse 22 are skirts. Chapter 13, 24 through 25, or I think it would be maybe, maybe the skirts go from 22 to 23 to be exact. Let me look here. 13. Um, let me look here. We left out 30, uh, 23 here. Um, oh, we forgot one. We forgot one. I'm glad I looked. All right. 22 is the skirts. 23 is the uh, Ethiopian and the leopard. Ethiopian and the leopard. Ethiopian and leopard. Okay. Chapter uh, chapter 13, verse 23 is the Ethiopian and the leopard. I don't know how why I left that out. I don't know where, what I was thinking. All right. So let's go through these again. See? See, sermon prep. I'm helping myself here. Okay. I don't know why I left it out of my notes. I was just, I was just getting ready to say, well, skirts obviously go from 22 to 23. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. Let me actually look that up. And then I'll look it up. I'm like, no, that's the leopard and uh, the, the Ethiopian and the leopard. Okay. So let's go through these again. 13, 1 through 11 is the garment. 13, 12 through 14 are the bottles. Chapter 13, verses 15 through 16 is the stumbling travelers. Chapter 13, 17 through 20 is the flock. Chapter 13, verse 21 is the woman in labor. Chapter 13, verse 22 are the skirts. Chapter 13, verse 23 is the Ethiopian and the leopard. And the fact that none of you came into chat 
to correct me, you're all, that's it. You, you're all, you all lose a hundred points. You all lose a hundred points. All right. Next chapter 13 verses 24 through 25 is the chap. And then 13, uh, chapter 13 verse 26 through 27. I still don't know if it's the best, but we're referring to that as nudity. Nudity. I, I, if you got a better idea for those verses, that's okay. That's kind of our outline that we came up with, all right? And most of the commentaries I saw, they, they don't break it down so into those little smaller segments. They kind of group all a lot of things together. But I really wanted us to see this idea of these objects. And we talked about the hermeneutical positives and negatives of using objects. But in this case, they have to be positive because, well, God is the one using the objects. Now, what we're going to do is I thought, well, let's pick a sermon and we're going to review a sermon on chapter 13 and see how they handle the text. And I don't know how long we're going to go. We're going to go either until we finish the sermon or until we may stop somewhere in the middle. The key here is just to add additional content for you, right? Because, you know, you pay so much for all that. No, just, to, but I mean it to add additional content for you. And secondly, it helps me. It gets my mind. See, like right there, it just helped me. I don't know why here in my notebook, I'm, I'm literally missed that verse. I don't, I don't know how I missed it in my notes. Um, I probably have it in my notes on my iPad. Um, but my handwritten notes, uh, it's not there. So there you go. Are you ready? Ready to do a little sermon review? Thinking caps on. Bible's open to Jeremiah chapter 13. Notebooks open, Bible dictionaries open, any other tools you have? Let's do this. Usually I give titles to my sermons, although I don't usually announce them. Sometimes there's a bit of a struggle, but there's no struggle with regard to this evening's title for the sermon, because it is simply this, a spoiled or a ruined girdle, full bottles, an Ethiopian and a spotted leopard. And that's what the sermon's going to be all about tonight. Because this is what this chapter is all about. This ruined girdle, filled bottles, an Ethiopian, and a spotted leopard. Okay, now see, he breaks it down just to the, the girdle, the full bottles, and the Ethiopian and the spotted leopard. That's how he breaks it down. But to me, there's other objects there. There's this woman in labor. There's these skirts. There's, there's these other things. There's this flock. I think I, I, to me, this is just my own personal thing. Remember when we do these sermon reviews, I don't listen to them first. We're listening to it in real time together. He, so he may mention all of those things. I just wanted to break them down because I wanted us to see each, object like in this verse okay what's the deal with the woman in travail now it may fit you may be able to put it with one of these other things but i want to separate them out to really see that this chapter is utilizing object lessons so um let's see how he handles it um maybe he'll mention these other things if he doesn't that would be uh, sad if he does it would be wonderful uh, and let's see if he handles some of these things the exact same way i did or if he does it i mean the key is i'm here to learn right that's what i'm here to do i'm here to learn and and but i'll obviously just like i listen to any sermon i'll stop and pause and offer my own thoughts my own analysis my own critique not just because i like that challenge and so uh, here, the, the the key here is not to criticize; it's to learn. But it's always fun to 
Go, well, what about this? And I don't know about that. And could be this. And don't know about that. So let's just see where we end up tonight. Now, what could this all be about? So the first heading is simply this. A ruined girdle. Well, really, girdle. The, the word there underlies girdle. It's, a, it's one of these sort of ambiguous terms in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And it could mean a number of things legitimately. And so there's various translations. The New King James Version, I think, translated as Saish. I did have a thought of being provocative and talking about the Saish Jeremiah War this evening, but it'll bypass that. But then you see, if you're using ESV, it talks about loincloth. And that was an undergarment that went below the robes that they would have worn. The NIV, it talks about a belt. And it's really the context that determines your understanding of this and what it means. And I think it is really a belt that is being spoken of here. And because of the context, and as we will see, it's something that would be visible. It certainly wasn't an undergarment, and it wasn't some sort of a sash. It was a, a sort of a belt. Even back whenever you read in Second Kings, Oh, this is interesting. We went more with the idea that it was a garment worn by the priest close to the body. Close to the body. And then the garment pictured Israel being close to God. But God now is going to take that garment that was close to him, right? That was supposed to be in close fellowship with him and close worship of God. He's going to take that garment and then send it away. And it's going to be corrupted, showing Israel, Judah is going to be taken away and corrupted and ruined in captivity. Uh, he's going to go with the belt idea. That's interesting. So if it's a belt, then Judah is pictured as a belt. The, the garment close to the priest seems to carry kind of, it seems to work a little bit better. I wonder how he's going to make the belt idea work. Uh, now, now I'm curious. Now I'm curious. Let's see where he's going to go here. One eight, it talks about um, Elijah and the people describe Elijah to the king. And they say that he was a hurry man and he had around his loins or around his waist this leather girdle. It's the same word in Hebrew. Now you wouldn't wear a leather loincloth under your clothing and something like that. So I suggest it was indeed a belt. But don't get hung up on that. But you see, with regard to this, there's such a strange instruction that the Lord gives. And let's just think about this strange instruction that was given to him. And he says to Elijah, says, Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and get a linen girdle, a linen belt, put it upon thy loins, that is, put it around your waist, and put it not in water, don't get hung up about that. Put it not in water. I think it just means don't ever wash it. And he says, so I got this belt according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And then they see, it comes and the word of the Lord came unto me the second time saying, take this belt that thou hast got. And he's to take it now. And he's to walk with it away to the river Euphrates. Some 350 plus miles. It would have taken him months to do that. Okay, now we did not point that out. The uh, someone, a listener, pointed out it was like a 350 mile walk for him to take this 
belt. Now he's calling it a belt. Now the Hebrew would allow for that. It would. I just, I, 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 I like the idea of a garment worn by the priest, but a, a belt. Now he says it's not to be washed. We kind of had the idea. The reason you don't put it in water is because the water is going to ruin it, right? Because he's going to take it to, well, near the Euphrates River, depending on the translation, almost buried in the Euphrates River, and it's corrupted. Is it the water that ruins it? I, I don't know. So we, we, but again, we got to be very careful not to try to make each one of these things fit something. But should we worry about what kind of garment it was? Was it a garment? Was it a belt? Was it a waistband? How do we understand it? Does that matter? I think the main thing is we have to know it represents clearly Judah. That That's the thing we have to understand, right? And even if it was a waistband, if it was worn by the priest, if it was some kind of belt worn by the priest or the holy or, or, or the, the high priest, then it would still be something worn close to the priest and it's going to be taken and removed from. And, and, and again, it would be like Judah being close to God and being removed and then. And corrupted. So the same idea would carry. Let, let's see how he uh, plays this out. And here he is wearing this girdle, this belt that is there around his waist. And the people have watched him with this belt because it's different from the clothing that he's been wearing up to that time. And there it is and it's linen and it's pristine, it's white. It has something of beauty about it and it's tied around his waist and they have watched him and now they watch him making his way away off to the Euphrates. And so he went there. And what does he do there? He has to hide it in a cleft in amidst the rocks, in a hole, this lovely white girdle. And so he has to walk away back again. And then it says, verse 6, And it came to pass after many days, it's been there a long time, and he is told that he is to go back to the Euphrates, and he is to get it again. And so he has to make that long journey to the Euphrates, and there he takes out this belt that had been beautiful and white and so on at one time. And when he takes it out, behold, the girdle was ruined, and it was profitable for nothing. Just as a little aside, do you notice how God unfolds his will to Jeremiah? He didn't come to Jeremiah at one go and say, take this belt, tie it around your waist, wear it for a while, then go out to Euphrates and bury it there, then come back, wait a while longer, and then go back to Euphrates and dig it up again. He just gave him it bit by bit by bit by bit. That's an important lesson when the Lord is guiding us sometimes. And he guides us through his word. He doesn't always reveal what he has for us. Just all in one go. Just bit by bit by bit. We want the Lord, you know, to give us a map for the rest of our lives, don't we? And remember, I, look, I know that standard Christian language. And I know that I find myself in the minority of the minority of the minority. Look, I do believe God guides and directs us through his word, but I don't believe there's some kind of like, I read it and then God gives me some something I, that it, it turns it into this mystical thing that just raises, that creates more problem. If God is supposedly, if every believer God is revealing and leading and, and showing and teaching, well, then we wouldn't have 50 billion different denominations and nobody can agree on the interpretation of anything. We can't even agree on baptism, the Lord's Supper. We, we would all come to an agreement. God would lead us to, here's what to believe about baptism. Here's what to believe about the Lord's Supper. Here's what to believe about salvation. Here's 
here's what to believe about church. I mean, I mean, it, it would just be over. Uh, there wouldn't be all these problems. So I, I, I look, God's given us his word. I am led as I read it, study it, and properly interpret it because any wrong interpretation is wrong leading. The problem is everyone thinks their interpretation is right. So nobody really knows if we're being led properly because we could be being misled by our own wrong interpretation. That raises all kinds of questions. And that is an entire podcast in and of itself. But we'll, we'll, we'll go here. We'll go here. I, well, I just, I, I do. I'm glad he gave us a different, you know, a possible possibility of what this garment is. He doesn't really connect it to the priests yet, but we'll see. I, obviously, it represents Judah. And I, I think he's going to explain all of this here shortly. Let's see. So often he just leads us bit by bit by bit. And so here is this strange, strange instruction is given to him. Now then, there's this searching explanation because whenever Jeremiah has done that, the Lord speaks to him again. And thus, verse 8, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Thus saith the Lord, after this manner will I mar, will I ruin Judah and Jerusalem. And you see, the explanation of this is that this belt was a representation of Israel and Judah. And as he walked about with this around his waist, and people would look at it and see it and see this lovely belt initially. Well, this is a representation of what Judah and Israel is to the Lord. Because the Lord will say in verse 11, for as the girdle, the belt cleaves to the loins, the waist of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah. And they had been there, they had that place of privilege around my waist is that belt that could be looked upon. But what has happened to Israel and Judah? And what is it that God ruins with regard to them? I said, whenever I was reading the verse, that he would ruin Judah and Jerusalem. Did you notice? I left something out. What did I leave out? He says this, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. And here is this problem with these people who have been so privileged and once could have been a thing of beauty, as we will see. They have been filled with pride that is, that's really good. I do like that. It, it says, thus saith the Lord, after this matter will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Now, of course, the nation is going to be marred. The nation is going to be, in a sense, corrupted and ruined in captivity. But he's going after their pride. Now, we could ask ourselves a very, a, a, an application this evening in a devotional way. What would it take for God to truly break your pride? Like, what would it, honestly, what would it take? Now, we could ask ourselves, was Judah and Jerusalem's pride actually broken by the captivity? Now, even if you say, well, it was, did it really last? Did it really last? Because we know they come out of captivity, out of the Babylonian captivity, and it's not going to be long 
But right back, I mean, like they, they, they are they not going to turn from God again? And then Rome is going to be in, char- in charge of them. And then, oh, well, oh, yeah, yeah. Then, then ultimately, for the most part, they're going to reject their Messiah and have him crucified. And well, then Jeru- uh, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in seventy A.D. It, it, it's it's a it's a good question uh, to ask. Let, let's let's see where this goes. And as a consequence of that pride, they are. Utterly, utterly rejecting God, as we will see. And God will mar and stain and spoil the pride of Judah and Israel. This is the significance of Jeremiah taking that belt and burying it there at the Euphrates. Because the Euphrates is the great river that flowed through Babylon. And God will eventually bring these people in exile there into Babylon. And he will destroy, he will ruin their pride. Because pride is a dreadful thing in the sight of God. And as you read through this chapter, you'll see that pride is this problem. It says there, uh, as he says in verse 9, after this manner will I smar, I will spoil, I, I will ruin the pride of Judah, the great pride of Jerusalem. Verse 15, the prophet will say, hear ye and give ear, be not proud. He will say again in verse 17, and he will weep in secret places for your pride. He will cry out even to the queen, really that is the queen mother and the king, humble yourselves, come down from your pride before God. You see, we must understand how dreadful a thing pride really is. That is one of the great cardinal sins of the devil. When he was known as Lucifer and that beautiful being that was there and was renowned for his beauty and his intelligence, he was filled with pride and said, I will ascend into heaven. I will become his God. And he was going to dethrone God and take his place. And you see, that is what pride does. And sadly, this world is filled with pride. And this people... This nation, they had been so filled with pride. God had been good to them. God had blessed them. God had given them so much. But they became proud of it all. And they thought, we can do without God. We don't need God. And as a result of that, there was indeed this refusal. Verse 10. This people, this evil people, refused to hear my words And they walk in the imagination or the stubbornness of their heart. And they walk after other gods to serve them. They have said, we don't need God anymore. We don't need his word. We don't need his message. Look at what we have got. We are fine. And the manufacturer for themselves, their own false gods that they will go after. Has this any application to us in this era? It most certainly does. You think of this nation. I've emphasized this so often, of which we are a part now. Let me be clear, there is no nation on this earth that ever has or ever will take the place of Israel in relation to their affinity with God. They had a peculiar, a special, a unique place with regard to God. There is no nation that occupies a similar place. But it is beyond contradiction, beyond doubt, that over the period of history there have been those nations that have been peculiarly, specially, uniquely blessed of God. And that is beyond contradiction. And you read your history books and you read through your history books and you come and you begin to read the history of the nation of which we are are a part. 
and you will see how marvelously, wonderfully we have been blessed of God. And so many of the things that sadly our nation has become so proud of and venerate themselves for flowed from the goodness of God to them. And I could illustrate that by so many means, but we have become so proud as a nation. And what have we done? We have jettisoned God. We have jettisoned his word. We don't need God. We don't need his word. We can manage without him. And it's not just that they say we can do as well without God and his word. They say we can do better without God and his word. Now, this is fascinating, and it just always shows how, when you read a text, how at different times, different things hit you. He obviously is focusing on pride and even showed how the concept appears numerous times in the chapter. For me, I was immediately struck by the objects, the objects, the objects, the objects, and the objects. And what's the main story? What's the main lesson to be taught in these objects? So I, that's why I broke the chapter down in my outline, even in smaller detail, trying to see every single object. He, he's like, yeah, he's not, well, he's kind of given us a little bit about the object. Um, and then showed us Jerusalem, Judah, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, they're going to be taken into captivity. But he spent more time focused on the pride than the object, which is great because we always want to see what the object points us to. I wanted the object to point us to Judah and Jerusalem and Israel being, you know, marred, destroyed. Uh, but the key is because of their pride. So I probably should have focused more on the pride. So this is really good to hear. But I really wanted us to see the objects because I thought it was just so interesting. And it's the, all the hermeneutical implications that come from it. But yeah, we we definitely need to see the pride. So if you need something specific, that that's something you can really ask yourself. What, what would it take to to fix your pride? And And then really, did this really... Did this really fix their pride? Did it really? Can our pride ever truly be fixed as long as we possess a sinful nature? Now, we always want to be combating it, but what would it take? I mean, honestly, what do you think could happen to you that your pride would just be utterly, it would just be destroyed? And they've got this idea that they're on this upward progression. That they're on this evolutionary upward trajectory. And they're just going to get better and better and better. And they don't need God and his word. In fact, God and his word is only a hindrance to them. On their path of self-improvement. But you know, we can sit here aloof from that. And when we think of it nationally. But we have to bring it down individually. You see... The people who are in this world have been so privileged of God because every person comes to this world still bearing the image of God. Remember Adam? He was made in the image of God. But the word of God makes it plain. Although they fell in sin and the image of God has been marred, spoiled to some degree, still we retain the image of God. And I believe the image of God is a composite thing. You could see it in so many ways. There is that which elevates us above the animals. Our rational thoughts. Our ability for inventiveness. My God is the great inventor. As he invents this whole world and he creates it. And so we have that. The ability for communication. 
the, the community for the, the ability to solve the greatest of problems and our God is the great problem solver. You could go on. These things that are part of the image of God and man, but yet what has man done? He has become so self-inflated, so lifted up in his own opinion of self that, ha, huh, I don't need God. And they'll even deny that God has made them and that God sustains them. They can do without them. And oh, they're awful, obnoxious arrogance. I just listened to a snippet uh, a, a week or two ago uh, of a bit of a debate with, between, between two men, a, an absolute atheist, as he claims to be, uh, and a Christian. And this atheist went on in uh, 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 such pomposity. Uh, and you see, he, he talked about how you know, we have developed and we have got to this stage where now we can explain everything and science and scientists can explain everything. And now we're able to explain that really the idea and the concept of God was just something that was developed by man and we don't need it. And during the course of it, he says, you know, if the scientists had only come first, we would never have needed or had religion or any idea of God. And we can explain God away. We don't need him. And the Christian interjected and said, but listen, your argument doesn't hold water because there are those who were claimed to be atheists and that they have been brought to this place where they've come to know there is a God and to trust in him and to believe in him. And he began to give a list of these people who have been in atheism, some well-known names, and now have been converted to this. And the man's response was this, well, I would just look upon that as the beginnings of senility. Belief in God is evidence of senility. Oh, the arrogance. And I would just say, atheists can be arrogant. Come on. Christians can be arrogant and pompous uh, just as much as any atheist. So it's, it, this is a, this is a human heart problem. The human heart. It's, it's a, it's a, it's our sinful nature problem. All right. So the arrogance is there in the church, outside the church, in atheism, well within the world of theism, well within the world of Christianity, because we can be arrogant and prideful that we've got it all figured out and we've got all the answers. Just may it may sound a little different, but trust me, it is still there. I mean, here in, in Jeremiah, this is the pride here is of, Ju- of Judah and Jerusalem, of, of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is God's people who are arrogant and who are proud. And what don't you see that uh, when you open up the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Don't you see that pride and arrogance there? Okay, all right, let's continue. But it comes down beyond that, the individuals that walk our streets. One of the great characteristics is this, pride. Pride. And this is the reason why they will not acknowledge their sin. And if they do acknowledge their sin, Their pride will cause them to minimize it and look at the other person and say, ha, I might be a sinner, but I'm not like that sinner. And even if they will acknowledge their sin, they will also have this pride in them that will say that they are able and they have the capability to deal with their sin by themselves. They can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And even if God has any part in it, well, still they have the upper hand and their pride says, I can do it, albeit I need a little bit of help, but I will still do it. 
And oh, what dreadful thing pride is. So you see that God says, I will ruin your pride. I will humble you. I will show you what you really are and how helpless you really are. And then they, the refusal there is expounded, but then what is the result of this? What is the result of it? Well, look at what they could have been. He says in verse 11, For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory. My, had these people heeded the word of God, what blessings would have been showered upon them as a means of being to God, this people, and for a name that God is indeed theirs, and for a praise and a glory to God. Think of it. Now, we could ask a very important theological question. If that's what God wanted for them, for them to be a people for a name and for praise and for glory, if God wanted Israel and Judah for them to be a people for a name, for praise and for glory, clearly their sinful nature did not want this. None of us want it, right? But will God ultimately get what he wanted? Will God's ultimate desire be fulfilled? Or did he so fail did Israel so fail that God is just done and that desire now is, is, is going to be given to the church? Or will God ultimately from Israel and Judah that they will be unto him a people for a name and praise and for a glory and that God, all Israel will be saved and he will fulfill the promise and they will accomplish what he wanted? Or will God's desire be thwarted? Will God's desire, will God's will, will God's want be thwarted by the rebellion in the hearts of Israel? And if it could be thwarted by the rebellion in the hearts of Israel, then could, could we not thwart, thwart God's will and in ourselves? Or is God greater than our will and his sovereignty will accomplish what he so desires. And if he wants this for Israel, Israel will be saved. They will receive the promises and they will be those very things. That's a good, that gets into a big question about eschatology, but it also really gets into kind of how do we understand God? So, and his will and his providence and his decrees and his sovereignty. Okay, Bart, let's continue. Used to bring praise and glory to God. You think of Jeremiah walking about with that initially beautiful linen belt around his waist and the people would be admiring it and seeing it there associated with Jeremiah. And so it would have been. Had they stayed close to God, they would have been a means of bringing glory to God and knowing so much blessing. Listen. That is how it is for every individual. What does the catechism say? Sadly, we're so unfamiliar with it in these days. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose for which God has created us? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is the pinnacle of man's attainments to bring glory to God. Nothing can get greater than that. Nothing can go beyond that. And this is what they could have had. 
And you look at people around us in these days and they're strutting about in their pride if they could only see it, what they could have been to bring glory to God. That's what they could have been, but what have they become? What he says there, verse 10, This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart, walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this belt, this girdle, which is good for nothing. When it says good for nothing, it means it is utterly useless for the purpose for which it was originally made. Oh, Jeremiah might have been able to use it to brush away dirt from his sandals. He might have been able to use it to wipe away dirt from some other thing that was of no consequence or of no great value, but it was utterly useless for the purpose for which it had been made. And this is the sad, the tragic thing with regard to mankind in their sin and in their pride and the sight of God. They are useless for the purpose for which God created them. Useless. And the most intelligent people in this world, the people who have seemed to have achieved so much and produced so much, Almighty God says, in my estimation, useless, worthless, you're no good. Because you cannot attain to that for which I originally created you. But man can never attain to what God created us to be. But God, in his mercy, saves us and then forgives us and imputes Christ's righteousness to us. And then God is glorified in us and through us. Now, the key is those whom he does not save... Do they fail to meet God's purpose or is God glorified? Then yeah, that raises some really uh, emotional questions about that. But you're right. We're good for nothing in and of ourselves. What We can never attain to God's purpose. We can never attain to being that which glorifies God because we are sinners and have a sinful nature. God saves us. And then we, we still never truly glorify God even in our practical life. We only truly glorify God in our position, right? Because in our practice, we still always fall short. Correct? So, all right. What a tragic condition our world is in. And there's the ruined, the ruined girdle, the ruined belt. But what about the filled bottles? What about the filled bottles? Well, after God has spoken this to Jeremiah and spoken about these people, he says in verse 12 again, Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word. And here's the message that is to be brought. He says, speak unto them this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. Now, bottles in those days, they weren't made with glass, as you would know. Many of them were made with leather. Some of them were clay, clay pots that were known uh, as bottles, as we would call them. And these were indeed clay pots like this. And so there's just this short message. Every bottle shall, bottle shall be filled with wine. And what is the response of the people? Well, notice the snide sarcasm in their response to the prophet. 
Do we not know certainly that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Oh, Jeremiah, big deal. Tell us something we don't know. Of course every bottle will be filled with wine. That's what they're made for, isn't it? Now listen, I want you to get a grasp of this. He comes to them and he says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine. Do you know what they should have been doing? They should have been saying, The Lord has spoken. He has a message for us. Jeremiah, what does God mean when he says this? And instead they mock, they ridicule, they're sarcastic. Big deal. So he has said that. Now, there's some dispute here. Now, if you go back and listen to our kind of discussion that we had, the way I teach is kind of this like, you know, we're all involved trying to figure it out. And I throw out all kinds of ideas. We struggled a little bit with this because some seem to think that what they were saying is, of course, every bottle is going to be filled, that they understood this to be we're Israel. We're Judah. God is, God has promised to bless us that we will be filled with all blessings. That of course everything's going to be filled. They don't perceive themselves to be in danger of judgment or sin. They see themselves as the favorite of God. And so they will be blessed. Um, he's reading it more like, well, of course every bottle is going to be filled. That's what they're made for. But some believe they're, they're like, well, because we're, we're going to be blessed. And then the next verse says, Then shall thou say unto them, Thus say the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings and sit that sit upon David's throne, and the priests and the prophets and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. Hey, you think you're going to be filled in a sense with blessing? You're going to be filled with drunkenness. Now we kind of we kind of got a little off track a little bit and say, well, wait a minute, why would God fill them with drunkenness? Why would he like why would he not fill them with with clarity of thought? But we 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 I think we ultimately figured out. Being filled with drunkenness here is not literal drunkenness, that he's using drunkenness in a sense as a metaphor to say, you're going to be filled with judgment. Instead of being filled with blessing, you're going to be filled with judgment. And he's using drunkenness as a picture of that judgment. So you're not going to be filled with blessing. You're going to be filled with judgment. And I think we worked that out. I think before it was all said and done, I kind of started going in a certain direction and then kind of realized maybe that's not the direction. I think we cleaned it up. It wasn't perfect, but I think we cleaned it up. And now that probably tells me we probably need to do a little bit of work and clean that up tomorrow a little bit better. I didn't get any emails about it, uh, but... I think, I think we cleaned it up, but let's see how he's going to approach this. I think that they're saying, of course, every bottle is going to be filled. And some believe that that's a reference to a proverb. We, we, we didn't really know for sure. We kind of went back and forth, but I think in their minds, they're like, at least this is how some commentaries went. We're going to be blessed. Of course, everything's going to be filled. We're, we're going to be blessed, right? That they're looking that, that God is supposed to bless us. And, well, you're going to be filled, but not, not with a good thing, but with, with, with drunkenness, which is a picture of judgment. Let's see how he handles it. So then, the meaning is made clear to them. And I want you to see this, the significance of the filling. He says, verse 13, whenever they ask you in that sarcastic tone, do you not, certainly we know every bottle will be filled. He says, then shalt thou say unto them, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, 
Even the kings that sit upon David's throne and the priests and the prophets and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dice them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together. And the significance of this filling of the bottles is this. Those people are the bottles that are going to be filled. And what are they going to be filled with? The wine of God's wrath. You see, that is a familiar image in the word of God. Whenever you go back into the book of Psalms, and you go into Psalm 75, we read in verse 8, that there is in the hand of the Lord a cup, and the wine is red, and it is full of mixture. He poureth out of the same, but the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. And you see, it speaks of the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And he says, I am going to fill you with the wine of my wrath. And there he speaks of that. You know, whenever you come into the book of the Revelation, you get a harrowing statement there in the 14th chapter. And it talks about those who receive the mark of the beast in their forehead or in their hand. Now, listen, don't get caught up with this, that it's some sort of um, chip that's going to be implanted or, or, or something visible or something that, that can be used. You must keep things in their context. Listen, in the first verse of chapter 14, John says, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him in 140 and 4,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now listen, if you're going to make the mark of a beast a literal thing that can be seen, you will have to make this a literal writing across their forehead. It's not, it's a symbol. And on the forehand, it means it's clear, it's obvious that they belong to God. And not only that, the forehead speaks of the thinking faculties behind. Their thoughts are governed by God, who is their father. But on the other hand, there are those. And it's obvious that they're not gods. That they are indeed still enslaved to the devil and his emissaries. And their thought processes are governed by them. And please don't relegate this to some time away in history. This is how it is now. If you're saved... You have the name of God written in your forehead. If you're not saved, you're still wearing that mark that you're not the Lord's. And you see those who continue like that, what occurs, verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And you see, this speaks of the the, the wrath of God. This speaks of the judgment of God. This is the significance of our Lord Jesus praying in Gethsemane's garden. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Because there there was the cup of wrath, And it was poured out on Christ at Calvary. And the wrath of God that was due for all who would ever trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Those who would bear the mark of the Father in their forehead, as it were, was poured out on him and he swallowed it up. And you see, here these people in Jeremiah, and you see God says he's going to fill them with his judgment. Not talking here of the final judgment but the judgment that will come. 
And oh, you see this judgment that will come and they'll be made drunk as it were. And in their drunkenness they will dice themselves one against another, even the fathers and the son together. And the idea to me it seems to be that God will so work and let these people have their way. And the outpouring of his wrath is he will make them drunk in their own pride and their own willfulness and they'll turn against each other. And my, they will just smash against each other like these clay pots and they will be broken. My, how many times you see that in nations, don't you? How they turn against each other and the dreadful things that occur. But I want you to notice this. The earnestness of the pleadings then of Jeremiah. Because he says in verse 15, after he has delivered this message of the Lord about this wrath, and he says, hear ye. Give ear, be not proud, be done with your proudness, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he caused darkness, before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains, and you look for light. He turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. And you know, if you turn from the light and you reject it, there will be nothing but more and more and more darkness. And God is the one who can intensify that darkness. And he pleads with them, Oh, listen to me. Please turn from your pride. Now, the good thing here is, is this kind of gets into the stumbling travelers who cannot see and they stumble. And from a practical standpoint, what causes us to stumble, what causes us not to see is pride. Pride is the thing that blinds you, right? Pride, spiritual pride, emotional pride, whatever your pride is, pride blinds you to reality. Pride gouges out your eyes and and it, but you'll think you see but you're seeing through the eyes of pride seeing through the eyes of pride is blindness to reality pride blinds you to reality you think you see you think you have 2020 vision but you can't you don't see anything you don't see you don't you don't even know you can't see anything at all so so there is a a very practical lesson there because the pride is, he warns them about the pride before they're going to be stumbling around in darkness, right? So you, you, the pr- pride blinds you. It's that simple. W- wherever pride is present in your life, you're blind. But you think you see. But you don't see because of your pride that blinds you. And any cry. In verse 18, and he says, Say unto the king and to the queen, Humble yourselves, sit down, that is, bow down yourselves. As be humbled in heart before God comes and humbles you. And how we need to plead with sinners that they would do likewise, that they would leave their pride, they would humble themselves before God, and they would cry to Him. Cry to him for mercy and listen. I want you to notice as well with this the intensity of the weeping. Verse 17 he says, but if you will not hear it. If you will not listen to God. If you will not listen to my pleadings. He says, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. My eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears. Do you notice his emphasis? Three times he speaks of it. I shall, my soul shall weep in secret. Mine eyes shall weep sore. They will run with tears. 
And here is this man filled with anxiety and anguish as he looks at his people in their pride and their persistent rebellion and refusal of God. And he pleads with them with tears. Do you know something? Our problem in this land, there are too many dry eyes, not just among the unsaved, but among the saved. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out an assignment here, right? This is for those participating in the Bible study exercise. I want you to try to find 10 verses that outline the dangers of pride or, or 10 verses that, that give you warnings about pride, right? 10 warnings about pride. And then I want you to find 10 verses that specifically tell you what pride does to you, the negative results of pride. I want you 10 verses that seem to warn you about pride and 10 verses that seem to kind of articulate or show you the, the damage that pride brings, the, the, the negative side effects of pride. Now, it may mention pride or it just may demonstrate pride, the negative consequences. So 10 verses that warn you about pride, 10 verses that warn you about pride, and then 10 that seem to clearly show you the negative consequences of it, what, what the negative thing pride brings into your life. Because here, this chapter does say a lot about pride. So 10 verses that warn about it and 10 verses that seem to clearly articulate, hey, or show you the the damage of what pride does, what it leads to. Here, I think we get a little idea that pride leads to blindness, I think. It leads you to darkness. I think we see a little bit of that here. But let's see if we can do that. Try to find at least 10, no more than 10, but try to get as close to 10 as possible. 10 is the goal, Right. Obviously, more than one, that's not acceptable. Get as close to 10 as possible, right? 10 that warns you, you know, God hates pride. There's warnings about pride. And then 10, and some, maybe these overlap in some way. And if they overlap, that's okay. But 10 verses that warn and 10 verses that clearly show you the damage, the, the negative consequences of pride. All right. Let's, let's, let's try to get something very beneficial in this. And, and maybe, maybe tomorrow we'll work a little bit more on this because I, I, I feel bad that I, I was so focused on the objects, but I'm glad he's, he's really made this a lot about pride because I think there's, there's a lot of good there to be, to be gained. I remember John McDermott, who is the pastor in Machrafelt. He's now moving to Balamoni. And they had anniversary services to mark the anniversary of their church. And they had this meeting with the supper and so on. And then some of the old members came and they spoke about bygone days and the things that they remembered. And John told me, one after another of them told of being in the prayer meeting of the people weeping in the prayer meetings. When is the last time you saw one tear in a prayer meeting? When's the last time you heard a sob? You see, here's a man who knows what lies ahead of these people. And he weeps. I have given the overall title for these studies in Jeremiah, The Message Bathed in Tears. And so it was. All right, there's the ruined belt. There's the filled bottles. And then there's an Ethiopian and a spotted leopard, this won't take so long. Because he says there in verse 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? 
Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. And here you see he speaks about their personal inability. There's something that they cannot do. These proud people, these arrogant people who think they cannot, they can do without God. Here is something they cannot do. He says to them, listen. If you get the day when an Ethiopian can change the color of his skin. Now listen, he's not being pejorative here. He's not putting down Ethiopians. Whenever we get on in Jeremiah, we'll be introduced to a man called Ebed-Melech. He is an Ethiopian and he is a godly man who helps Jeremiah. He's just making a point. If you could get somebody who has got black skin and by their own endeavor and will, they can make it white. Or if you can get a leopard that is covered with spots and make it remove its spots, then you will find a man among you who can change himself. And what is the reason for this? Inability. We must be careful about this. There is an inability that we all have because of the way that we have come into this world in sin. But he doesn't go back to that in this instance. What he says is this, look at it carefully. Can the Ethiopian change the skin of the leopard to spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. And he says, you're so ingrained in your rebellion, so ingrained in your refusal, so ingrained in your turning away from God. You're so accustomed to it. You simply cannot change. You cannot do it yourself. So, Oh, this raises. Do you not even understand the philosophical problems that screams at you from this text? If they cannot change, then only God can change them. So why wouldn't God just change them so they would not have to be the girdle that the garment that is ruined or the bottles that are filled with the drunkenness with the wine of God's wrath? Why would they why wouldn't God just change them? I want you to really contemplate that. If God is like, hey, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that is accustomed to do evil. Then is he, I'm going to read this in a different translation. That's 1323. Give me one second. I got to lean down. I got to grab my Bible. Oh, this one just raises so, this one just screams at me. This one. I'm, I'm going to, whoa, okay. Can the Cushite change his skin or a leopard his spots? If so, you might be able to do what is good who are instructed to evil. Hey, if someone, if they can do those things, if a Cushite, if an Ethiopian can change his skin and if a leopard can change his, if a leopard, how does it say, let me read this, or can a leopard his spots, if they can do that, then maybe you could change, but they can't, you can't. So if they can't, like, well, how do you how do you take thirteen twenty three? I really want I really want you to work on this. How do you take thirteen twenty three and process that in your mind? Hey Israel, I know Judah. I've given you message after message after message after message of judgment, 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 judgment. Hey, guess what? If these other things could change, you could change. But guess what? They can't change. You can't change. Well then. How do you understand that? Hey, you need to change, but you can't change. 
All right, who can change? Well, God could change you. <laughs> okay, so then what's your hope? Now, is the hope that God changes you. The hope has to be in something other than God changing you. The hope has to be in God forgiving you and God declaring you righteous, even though you do not change or are not changed. Isn't that just a bizarre verse? And it says, if so, you might be able to do what is good. You who are instructed in evil, I will scatter you like drifting chaff. Well, like what that, that is a, I, I don't even know how to process that in my mind, philologically or even philosophically. And everyone will say, no, the answer is simple. The answer isn't simple. God is like, Hey, Hey, you're going to get judged. 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 The only way not to get judged is to supposedly change. Well, obviously they can't change because the text right there says they can't change. And we know a person can't just keep God's law because nobody can. Oh, wow. Okay. Let, let's. You talk about the weight of God's law being crushing you in these passages. There comes then, after the, the, the personal inability, there comes the justifiable shaming of them in their pride. And he says, therefore, because of this, I will scatter them as a stubble that passeth away by the wind of the wilderness. You know, this uh, stubble, that's just what's left after there's been the harvest and the wind just comes and it blows it away. He says, that's what I'm going to do. You'll go off from me into exile, but there's more. He says, this is my lot, the portion that I measure from me, saith the Lord, because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. That is literally, you've trusted in the lie. Therefore, I will discover thy skirts upon thy face that thy shame may appear. This is something that seems almost crude. He's likening them to a woman, and the woman is cast down. And of course, in those days, they wore long dresses. They wouldn't have let their ankles be seen, let alone anything else. But that whole dress is just taken and is pulled right up until the only thing that's covered by it is her face. And you see the shame that is there. And he says, I will shame you in your pride. I will deal with your pride. And then there is finally the imploring question. He says, verse 27, I have seen thine adulteries, thy nangs, the lewdness of thy whoredom. That is their turning from God and going after other things. Thine abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe unto thee, Jerusalem. But Jeremiah cannot leave it with pronouncing woe. He must cry out, will thou not be made clean? When shall it once be that could be put, put, will you still not be made clean? And this is an imploring question. He's pleading with them as it were. Will you continue in your stubborn pride? Will you not realize that you cannot change yourself? Your only hope is in God and that he will cleanse you and make you clean from your sin. Remember God speaks to Isaiah, and come let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
And he says, that stain which you cannot remove yourself, if you will come to me, I can cleanse it. And of course, we have fuller knowledge now. We know what the cleansing agent is. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is why in all of our hymns, we have had the emphasis being cleansed in the blood, washed in the blood. Now, this is, this I think is very important. So on one hand, we're, you, you should, if you're reading, if you've been participating in the Bible study exercise, you've been working on Jeremiah, you've been doing all the homework, you should at least be overwhelmed with the fact that, that Judah, Israel, sin, 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 disobedience, 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 disobedience. And the question would be, well, what can, what can change them? Well, the issue is if God can change them, well, then God, why wouldn't God just change them so they could avoid the judgment? But God doesn't change them, but yet he condemns them. It's philosophically, theologically troubling. There's no way to get around it, right? There's no way to get around. I mean, you have to, like, look, you've only got two options in these issues, right? Here's God's law. He demands perfection, right? Okay. He demands perfection. He demands, you know, we can't keep it. We cannot keep it. We are condemned by it because the law demands perfection internally and externally. We never keep it. We don't keep it when we were lost. We don't keep it when we are saved. We still fall short. Even as a saved person, you don't love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You don't love your neighbor as self, and you're not as holy as God is holy, even though you're called to be that. You still fall short. So what is our only hope? Our only hope can't be that God will change us so somehow we can do it because no, we're, we're never going to do it. The hope of salvation isn't changing us so that we are more obedient because even more obedient is still disobedient because God demands perfection. You take the most righteous, holy living Christian, put their life against God's law. They still are fall short and are condemned. Our hope is not in an infused righteousness, but an imputed righteousness in which we are declared to be perfect and holy because of the obedience of Christ. He pays for our sins and his, the perfect righteousness and obedience of Christ is imputed to us. That's our hope. That's our hope. That is our hope. But sometimes when you read this, you're like, okay, from a practical standpoint, you're like, well, God, could you just not change them so that they could obey? Could you just not fix them? Could you just not make them obedient to avoid it? But he says, hey, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The answer is obviously no. You cannot change you. And the, the issue is God does not appear. This is very important. To simply change people so that they will obey. Because if he did, he could just change everyone. There would be perfection, there would be obedience, and there would be no more sin in your life or my life. Clearly, that's not the way God works. Now, I know someone's yelling at me right now saying, but if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, the old is gone and all things have become new. Well, slow down, slow down. If if that's the case and you take that to be referring to one's practical life, well, then the old nature would be completely gone and everything would be new. But the old nature is not gone practically. That The key in that verse is if anyone is in in Christ, he's a new creature. In my position, I'm a new creature. The old is gone. All things have become new. In my practice, I'm still a sinner. In Christ, imputed righteousness, I'm declared to be that which I'm not and which I will never be practically. I'm always going to be a sinner. 
we, we, we so focus on the gospel coming to change us practically, but the gospel comes to declare us perfect positionally. No, because of gratitude, we should seek to live it out. But here in, in Jeremiah, you're just like, they keep failing and failing. And, and, and clearly it seems, hey, you can't change yourself. Okay. So then what's the answer? How, how are they going to be made clean? Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem, will thou not be made clean? When shall it once, when shall it once be? Don't you want to be clean? Your only hope is to say, I'm not, I can't. God, you must do it for me. And so if we, again, depending on your eschatology, some people just throw Israel out and say, hey, they never could pull it off. They failed. They're done. They get all the curses. Dun, 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 dun. And then we get all of their blessings. But no, that would, that would destroy. Like, you don't want that to be true because then how could you trust your own salvation? Because if Israel, quote unquote, never got it because they couldn't do enough, then why do you have it? Because you can never do enough. The fact is Israel will be made clean. They will be restored. They will have their sins removed and they will all be saved because God is the one who justifies. God elected them and his election is sure and it is eternal. I think that's the only hope here. But you read this and you're just like, God, change them, change them. And then you can avoid all, if God is the one doing the change. Look, I, so I was kind of going in this direction and we talked about it in our, in our sermons on Jeremiah. Remember, you either have the idea that man can change himself, that man can believe and man can repent and man can turn from sin in and of himself. Now, to believe that, you're believing a quote-unquote what you call libertarian free will would require you to be a Pelagian or at least semi-Pelagian because you got to believe man's depraved nature does not impact the will and the will is completely free. And if the will is completely free, according to Pelagius, that would mean that there could be perfect people, even without regeneration. They could perfectly obey God's law just because their will is free. But we know nobody's will is free enough to keep God's law perfectly because no one ever has. The only one to ever keep God's law perfectly is Jesus Christ. And it's not because his will was free, because he was God himself, okay? He was God, right? So he did not have a sinful nature, right? But if if we, I guess you could say we would be almost like God if we if our nature is completely free from sin, but it's not. So, or you have man can't do it. God is the one who has to give us repentance. God is the one who has to give us faith. Well, then the question is, God, why didn't you just fix the problem here? Well, we think the solution is for them to stop sinning and to do good. Stop sinning and do good. But does God save people by causing them to stop sinning and do good? He saves them by taking the goodness and obedience of Christ and imputed it to them by faith. And he gives them the faith and he gives them the change of mind. They will, but Israel will be made clean. But at this point, they're not. All right, let's continue. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing part? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And I ask you tonight this question, have you been to Jesus truly? And are you cleansed from your sin? Are you washing the blood of the Lamb? People say, but is everybody here not maybe a Christian? I never take it for granted that everybody sitting before me is a Christian. Remember, if I had been there present with the 12 apostles and was to preach to them and assume that they were all... And let me just say this. 
I, I know preachers always do that. Yeah, you know, hey, 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 I'm saying this because there may be someone here who's not saved. What the people there who are saved needs to know, they need the same gospel. They need to hear that Christ died for their sins, that they need the, the same gospel that saved them is the same gospel they need Sunday after Sunday after Sunday because they spent an entire week of sinning and they're going to spend that Sunday sinning and that Sunday afternoon and that Sunday evening and they probably were sinning while they were sitting there because we're always in sin. Everyone needs to hear the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ was crucified for your sins and that his blood washes away all of your sins and in him is hope and peace and your hope and your peace is not in what you do, can do, should do, may do. It's in what Jesus did. It is finished. It is complete. And his righteousness is yours by faith, imputed to you by faith, accredited to your account. Everyone needs to hear that. Not just the lost, but sometimes when pastors say that at church, they almost have to say, hey, hey, guys, we just, I, I, there could be some of you here who are not saved. The saved needs to hear the gospel again. The gospel is for every person, saved or unsaved, every single day. The lost needs to hear it to, to be brought to faith. We need to hear it to have our conscience comforted because we're constantly crushed under the law because we're constantly in sin and we need to be reminded daily of what we have been given by faith alone. The imputed righteousness of Christ is passive and active obedience imputed to our account. All Christians, I would have been wrong. Judas was an emissary of the devil. I did ask, have you been to Jesus truly? And have you experienced this cleansing power? Are you washed clean from the stain of your sin? Oh, may pride not keep you back if you've never come. May you come and be washed. And let's pray that pride will keep none of our loved ones from the Lord, none of those around us. But may they come and be washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. It's a ruined belt Filled bottles, an Ethiopian, and a spotted leopard. Important lessons to learn from them, aren't there? Okay, so we will end everything here. A couple of things. Tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., we will work on Jeremiah 13 ourselves, so make sure you're tuning in for that. Hopefully the next hour tomorrow morning will be Jeremiah 14. Most likely Sunday night starting at 6 p.m. Central Time will be more Jeremiah 14, and then Wednesday, Jeremiah 15. We are in the summer of the book of Jeremiah, the summer of 2023. We're studying the book of Jeremiah. We're supposed to be finished by the end of August. Clearly we're not, but that's okay. We're going to do our very best. But here is the homework assignment that you have for the Bible study exercise. Remember, the Bible study exercise is to get you to participate, not just to listen. Your homework is this. I need 10 verses that warn about pride. Up to 10, no more than 10, but at least 10, 10 that warn about pride and 10 that seem to picture, articulate, and show you what pride does, the negative consequences of pride. I need you to find 10 of those. Email them to me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, and then I want you to spend considerable time meditating writing something out, discussing, talking about Jeremiah 13, 
verse, where is it? Verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. How do you understand in light of everything we've read and worked on in 12 plus 12 chapters of Jeremiah, where there's this sin, you're sinning, you're sinning. And then finally, it's like, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Rhetorical question. No. Can a leopard change a spot? Rhetorical question. No. Well, if they could, then you could change. You talk about the most crushing from a law gospel distinctive. This is law, ladies and gentlemen. You should be like, well, then I can't change. What is my hope? The hope is not change. The hope is a alien righteousness being given to you. Now, Israel will be ultimately saved, but at this point, they're going to be crushed because they can't change. How, how do you, how does that impact your own understanding of the text? How does that, how does, how, what do you do with that? I'd love to get your thoughts. News, if at yahoo.com. News, if at yahoo.com. Tomorrow at Victory Baptist Church, Jeremiah 13. We're going to finish it, right? Then, hopefully the second hour, hopefully, Jeremiah 14. There's a lot of directions we could go tomorrow. There's so much we could do tomorrow, but we will see. Thank you for, well, I don't apologize for the reviews going long. Uh, These reviews are just to add to our study so that you're hearing different perspectives, different pastors and what stands out at them. And and I'm grateful for that. Now, the pastor we just listened to, his name is Harry Dowds. D-O-W-D-S, Harry Dowds, D-O-W-D-S. You can find him on the Sermons 2.0 app or the Sermon Audio website. Harry Dowds, D-O-W-D-S. Look for him. I think I'm just going to do a search real quick. I think I think you shouldn't have any problem finding him. I'm going to open up the Sermons 2.0 app. Here we go. I'm going to go to home. I'm going to type in Harry Dowds. And there he is, Stone Park Baptist Church, Stone Park Baptist Church, all right? And I did talk to, uh, I did talk to uh, someone from uh, Sermon Audio, because if you search for Theology Central, us, on the Sermons 2.0 app, our sermons come up and our series come up, but we don't come up as a broadcaster, and I would like for people to be able to find us as a broadcaster when they search for us. Why are we not found when you search for Theology Central on the Sermons 2.0 app? I don't know. So I emailed them today and they, they said that that was weird and they were going to, they were going to look into it. So hopefully we can get that resolved maybe by Monday because, you know, you're paying $50 a month. You, you want your stuff to be found, right? So, um, so there you go, you know, because I'm always like, go to the Sermons 2.0 app and do a search for Theology Central. That's useless. I mean, you'll find our sermons, but you won't find us as a broadcaster. So hopefully they'll get that fixed. But look for Harry Dowds. Subscribe to their, I call everything a podcast, their sermons, and that'll show up in your feed on the Sermons 2.0 app whenever they post new things. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a wonderful Saturday night. Hopefully you have a wonderful Lord's Day tomorrow. If for some reason you don't have a place to attend church or you're not at church, well, tune in 10 a.m. Well, it's usually about 10.05, 10.10, you know, Baptist, they never show up on time. 10.05, 10.10, and then we'll be in the book of Jeremiah chapter 13. And then we'll take a break. 
Then we come back somewhere about 11.15, 11.20, and then we'll be in Jeremiah 14. And then Sunday night at 6 p.m., we'll be live with hopefully, probably finishing Jeremiah 14. It'd be great if we're Jeremiah 15. And then Wednesday night at 7 p.m., we'll be in Jeremiah. And then, of course, the countless hours we do every single day right here for the Theology Central podcast. And hopefully you benefit from it. All right. Thanks for listening. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a wonderful night. God bless.